past several episodes, I've worried out loud about this podcast becoming a podcast about COVID. I don't like talking about COVID because it hangs over every aspect of our lives right now, and it's incredibly depressing, but also it hangs over every aspect of our lives right now. So here we are again. Professionally, the most difficult aspect of the past year has been adjusting to constantly changing conditions. I get into an online private game, then I get kicked out of the game where the game dries up, the casino's open for outdoor play, then they close again. So I have sources of income that exist for a while and then completely disappear, and I have to find new ones. There have been stretches of a month or more when I don't feel I have profitable things to do other than play ignition games that pay a very small fraction of my usual income. As a whole, the 11-month period since the casinos first shut down last March hasn't even been bad for me. In fact, at times, it's been quite good. Games at the casinos, when they were open, were often great, and some of the online private action was really good too. But it's been difficult to lurch from one player pool to the next, not knowing how much money I can count on making, if I can count on making much at all. Several episodes ago, Yale Greenfield talked about FOMO, fear of missing out, and poker, and I've never felt it more acutely than I have this year. My friends and I are often playing not only in different games, but in completely different worlds. Every time I check in with them, I hear something different. What's become increasingly clear is that much of the action right now is in live private games, mostly at people's houses or in the quiet back rooms of businesses. You get an invite from someone you know or sort of know, then travel to a tricked-out suburban basement or a 23rd floor downtown condo to play 1025 or whatever, surrounded by girls in lingerie. I hear about these games everywhere, sometimes from friends, and sometimes from Instagram stories. I haven't played one of these games since COVID hit. I didn't really play them much at all before that. And here's my hot take for the day. These games shouldn't fucking exist right now. I don't want to scold people, and I appreciate that when a pandemic turns life upside down for the better part of a year, difficult decisions have to be made. When your livelihood depends on the physical presence of other people, it's really hard to say where the lines should be. As I've discussed here on this podcast, I've played live poker on and off since September. I only played outdoors and only in situations where there were many other precautions, like temperature checks and plexiglass dividers, but I did play. I played because, for me, the risks seemed reasonable, and I got to make money I needed to keep my life moving forward. To tell the truth, I was also sad and frustrated, being inside my apartment all day, every day, and playing live poker really helped. Someone might say, you know, Charlie, you weren't destitute. You could have easily collected unemployment and waited it out. Unemployment pays a small fraction of what I usually make, but yeah, that's true, and I didn't always do that. So... Maybe I increase the EV of the virus to some small extent. So I see a lot of room for gray here, and I don't think it's necessarily fair to call out any one person who's involved with these private home games, especially those who really need the money they make from them. If someone's a dealer or even a professional player in these games and needs that income, I can't begrudge them that. But obviously, these games don't run because dealers need to make money. They run because the people who host these games, who are often already rich, want even more money. They run because people want to party. They run because people want hedonic spaces where they can take their masks off in the company of others and drink. 
They run because people want to be near pretty girls. And they run because people want to gamble, both in poker and with the virus. These games dare COVID to take its best shot at us. The player juts out his chin for the virus to punch. He thereby proves his fearlessness. And most of the time, all the virus seems to be able to muster is a slap. The player never gets symptoms at all, or only gets mild ones. But really, the virus smiles because it doesn't care what the player thinks of it, only that it continues to spread. I get that the pandemic has gone on endlessly and people are frustrated. I get that they don't trust this is going to end soon. Although I think it mostly will, at least here in LA, with the sheer number of cases there are already and the vaccine eventually getting us pretty close to herd immunity. I also get that there's a closing the barn door aspect to me saying this right now, since the virus has raged for the better part of a year and has already hit a whole lot of people who play in these home games. And I get that people think sitting at home all day and doing nothing or playing poker online isn't fun because that's what I'm doing and it's not that fun. But COVID has run rampant through the poker community and every piece of anecdotal evidence I've heard suggests that these games where people congregate in indoor spaces and sit around tables not wearing masks are the main reason why. So now, when Los Angeles is pretty much the coronavirus capital of the world, I have a question. How many people are dead because of these home games? And I don't just mean how many people got the coronavirus at these games and died. I mean, how many people died after getting the coronavirus from someone who got it, from someone who got it, from someone who got it, from someone who was at one of these games? Dozens? And whatever the number, which members of the poker community were responsible? Fortunately for some of us, we'll never know the answers to those questions. But there have been over 15,000 recorded deaths from COVID in LA County so far, with the real number almost certainly higher than that. So how many of those people would still be alive if live poker in home games hadn't been going on this whole time? This year has been hard on everyone, and it's hard to fault anyone too much for not being perfect. I haven't been. But it's jarring to read news stories about what COVID is doing to Los Angeles, and then to hop over to Instagram where people I know are posting footage of live poker games in Los Angeles County in cramped, closed spaces without masks while music blares and girls spin on stripper poles and give massages. Normally, people can live how they want, but right now, this is wrong. So enough scolding, I guess. Uh, before I move on, I do want to give a shout out to the many poker players I know who actually have passed on opportunities to make money in order to stay safe. For example, and I don't think he'll mind me saying this, JJ De La Garza from Live at the Bike has mostly or entirely grinded it out in very tough online games since quarantine started. Props to him for that and to many other poker players I know who've made tough decisions that prioritize safety. Things have been rough here in LA for the past couple months. The casinos just reopened, but as of today, I haven't played any live poker since early December. Since then, I've gotten into two online private games. I ran poorly in one of them, and now it's dried up. It hasn't run in about a week. The other one has worked out better, but it's half PLO, which, as we've discussed, is not my specialty. The game also runs maybe about a dozen hours a week, so I have a lot of free time. I've used some of that free time productively. 
I have a New Year's resolution to spend a certain number of hours this year studying poker, and I've done well so far getting out ahead on it. A lot of what's useful to study in 2021 is either running your own simulations or watching videos where other people study simulations, and these things can both be really intense and really dry. It's hard to study sims for long stretches, and when I watch videos where people discuss spreadsheets for hours, I sometimes find myself listening, but not actively enough to remind myself what's most important. It makes me long for earlier times when the best ways to get better at poker were to learn mechanics and hand-reading tricks that were much easier to immediately apply. Way back in the day when I played sit-and-goes in tournaments, a lot of the most helpful advice was just like, if you have fewer than 10 big blinds and you're on the button or in the small blind, you can just go all in all the time and no one will ever call you without a big pair of ace-king. So here's 30 hands from sit-and-goes where I go all in on the button and everyone folds. And they did. Poker was not so sophisticated back then. Now it's harder and studying has gotten harder too. So it took a few weeks, but eventually I settled into a study routine that works for me. I found a series of training videos that are rooted in theory, but that don't use spreadsheets. And I jumped back into the 200 zone pool on ignition. I'll hop out whenever I have a question about a hand I've just played and I'll run a sim on it. I'm working with a stopwatch to make sure I meet my hours goals. It's not as fun as going to the casino, but it's making me better. I found some good lines in hands recently that wouldn't have been at all obvious to me even a month ago. I hate staying at home like this, but the study routine is helping me handle it. Another thing I've been doing less productively is watching the show Survivor. I never would have binged a reality show like this pre-quarantine, but I guess this is where I'm at right now. And... Uh, I have to say, <laughs> I find the show kind of fascinating. If there's anybody out there who's unfamiliar with the show, basically, a bunch of people live together on a remote island and form alliances, some temporary, some less so, to vote each other out of the game one by one. Then, when only two or three people are left, the players they've eliminated return to vote on a single winner. I started watching it because Garrett Adelstein of Live at the Bike fame was a contestant several years ago, so I thought, I'll watch the season he's on. Maybe I'll learn something about the way he thinks. He gets kicked off the show almost immediately, which was interesting because, on the surface, Survivor and Poker seem to have a lot in common. They're both games of imperfect information in which you have to gauge whether what your opponents are saying is trustworthy. In other words, whether your opponent has the hand she's representing. Is your alliance as strong as you'd like it to be, or are you next on the chopping block? Does your opponent have an immunity idol that you're not aware of, or are they telling the truth when they say they don't? You also have to tell stories yourself that might or might not be true. You might tell player A you're voting to eliminate player B, either because that's actually what you intend to do and you want player A to do the same, or because you don't want player A to know that you're actually voting to eliminate him. You might have the hand you're representing, or you might have a bluff. There are other parallels between the two games. The structure of Survivor is a bit like a poker tournament, with contestants being voted off one by one. And as I've watched, I've also learned that there are apparently old-school and new-school ways of playing Survivor, with the new-school having developed after the game became a pop culture phenomenon in the early 2000s. Apparently in old-school Survivor, you mostly hang out, build a camp, and wait for the game to come to you. New-school Survivor players talk strategy, try to figure out how the game works, and actively try to win. So basically, just like the old-school and the new-school in poker. So I started thinking, I'm pretty good at poker, would I be good at Survivor? 
And I thought, no, not really. Garrett is a much better poker player than I am and didn't do well on the show. And as far as I know, neither have other poker players who've been on Survivor, including Ronnie Barda and John Robert Balland. In Garrett's case, what happens is that the team he's placed on at the beginning of the game struggles in competitions with the other teams and therefore has to vote off two of its members. One of Garrett's teammates is awful in these competitions, so she seems like an obvious choice to be eliminated. But Garrett alienates some of his teammates by trying to stop them from talking to each other about who their choice will be. In other words, he tries to prevent them from having the conversations that pretty much are what makes Survivor interesting. Two of his teammates see him as controlling and conspire to eliminate him, in part to prevent themselves from becoming targets later on. None of this really was high-level stuff, and Garrett should have seen it coming, but he didn't, failing to play an immunity idol he'd found that would have spared him elimination, before being voted off in a development that caught him completely off guard. Which is so funny, because obviously Garrett is a great strategic thinker when he's playing poker. It's true that a big part of playing poker is mechanical. You have to know how to play your cards in common scenarios. In Survivor, these familiar situations don't really exist, because no one can play more than a couple times. But as a poker player, Garrett also excels at thinking flexibly and getting the most out of unusual situations. So why doesn't poker skill obviously translate to this other hidden information game? The popular view of professional poker players is probably first that we're degenerates, but second it's that we're masters of psychology, manipulating the rubes into feeling like they have to call when we have it and fold when we don't. But personally, I've never felt like some sort of psychological mastermind. My grasp of what other people are thinking is probably average, and I know many good poker players who are well below average in that department. I do of course try to exploit my opponents, and there are psychological elements to that. But a lot of it is just pattern recognition that's only really useful in poker. For example, I overfold to bet check bet lines from some opponents because I know from experience that they're unlikely to be bluffing when they bet the flop, check the turn, and bet the river. You could make up a psychological narrative about why they're unlikely to be bluffing. Maybe they feel like they can't look strong unless they consistently look strong, for example. But that's not why I overfold. It's because I recognize a pattern. As I mentioned, Survivor, unlike poker, is a game few people get to play at all, and that even fewer people get to play more than once. So there's little time for players to identify and exploit what might be common patterns if we got to run, say, a million simulations of the game. If there's anything out there that might give a poker player a clear edge on Survivor, it might be applying some principles from online poker. On poker software, players use colors to label their opponents based on their tendencies, and they react to those opponents' moves accordingly. In some cases, and this is ethically dodgy, but I do know that many top players do this, they buy massive databases of hands to look for tendencies in their player pools. If a database of millions of hands shows that players continuation bet too frequently, you can call or raise more often in response. There are 40 or so seasons of Survivor at this point, so maybe there's just enough data for someone to look through and glean basic trends, perhaps sorting by player age and by their performance in immunity challenges. Some of the savvier players in recent seasons already seem to be thinking in this basic framework. They sometimes compare each other or the situations in which they find themselves to players and situations from previous seasons of the show. It also seems likely to me that, as with poker, there are strategy fundamentals in Survivor. First, you vote out weak players who prevent your team from winning challenges, then you vote out players who might be disloyal to you, and so on. I haven't gotten too deeply into this because I would like to pretend that I still sort of have a life, 
but there's a Reddit post that outlines this basic approach to the game and uses it to divine what the author calls survivor's Nash equilibrium, a term that will be familiar to many poker players. Basically, theoretically optimal survivor involves knowing which sorts of players should be eliminated when, and then never being those sorts of players. For example, you can't be too weak at immunity challenges at the beginning of the game because you'll hurt your team and get voted off. But you also can't be seen as being too strong because that will make you a target later when immunity challenges are individual rather than team-based. There will always be tons of room to deviate from optimal strategy because immunity challenges and twists in the game open and close various doors, and because the players are complex individuals whose reads on each other will often be very different. But there are clear parallels here to poker tournaments, where a good player will shift her strategy in each stage. She'll play differently on the bubble than she does after its burst, and she'll change her strategy yet again on the final table. My guess, though, is that overall there's less overlap between the two games than one might think. Poker players have tons of data to guide them, and as much as poker is an interpersonal game, we're still playing cards, and much of poker is tied to understanding how cards work, how strong your hand is, how your range of hands interacts with the cards on the board, how likely your hand is to improve, and so on. If you're really good at all that stuff, you can understand nothing about psychology and still succeed. Computers are beating humans in poker now. And if your aim is to mislead your opponent, all you have to do is bet or raise or check, and then sit there quietly. You don't have to verbally sell your opponent a story unless you want to. In Survivor, you might have to actively lie. Actively lying to someone's face, especially repeatedly or about something they really care about, is hard, and I don't see it as having much to do with the way I think about poker. Players in Survivor lie for any number of reasons. They might pledge their loyalty to two mutually exclusive groups at once because they aren't sure which way the wind is blowing. They might tell a player they're about to eliminate their safe, a practice called blindsiding, so that they don't play an immunity idol before being booted from the show. They might pretend to have an idol when they don't, hoping to seem more powerful than they are. Or they might simply lie to win sympathy. In one early season, a contestant tried to win sympathy from his competitors by falsely telling them that he had just learned his grandmother had died. That sort of stuff makes me nervous. And I'm glad that, in poker, I don't have to do things like that. I was once at a gathering where we played Mafia, a party game that has much in common with Survivor. Due to my poker background, everyone seemed to assume that I'd be good at the game. In Mafia, a small percentage of the players in each round are randomly assigned to be secretly malevolent. The rest of the players who are supposed to be innocent have to figure out who the malevolent players are. The one round where I was one of the bad guys, I found it exhausting trying to convince the other players I was good. I had trouble interacting in real time with the other players in a way that I thought would be logically and psychologically consistent with how i talk if I had nothing to hide. It was sort of like running a huge bluff at the poker table. That can also be a bit nerve-wracking, but it's not that hard. There's a weird sort of comfort in knowing that once I've slid out the big pile of chips, there isn't much left for me to do. I try not to look physically weak or unsure, but that's not so difficult, at least against most opponents. I also don't have to talk. I'm telling a story, but the chips, the board, and the previous rounds of betting are doing most of the work. In fact, one of the things I like most about poker is that, even though it's a social game, I can kind of disappear into a world of pure gameplay, where almost all of what I'm thinking about is the cards and the bet sizes, the patterns of bets and raises and checks. You'll play better if you're thinking about the psychology too, but that's really hard to do continually over the course of a long session. So does poker require real dishonesty? I guess it does. Bluffing is a form of lying. But it all happens within the rules of the game. It's stylized. 
It doesn't really feel like lying, much like running play action in football or throwing a head fake in basketball doesn't feel like lying either. Having to look someone in the eye and literally tell a convincing lie is different. And so is looking back at someone who's talking to you and being able to figure out whether they're telling the truth. You can't do those things on autopilot, and in Survivor, you won't have the advantage of, say, blocking the nut flush and having been in lots of situations where you've blocked the nut flush and knowing what that basically means. You don't have the cards to guide you. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.